Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. It's a great honor to have Nicholas Gonzalez, MD, the author of One Man Alone, an investigation of nutrition, cancer, and William Donald Kelly, and the tropoblast, and the origins of cancer, one solution to the medical enigma of our time. He has studied and met William Donald Kelly, and he was taught and guided by Dr. Robert Good, who was an expert in the area of the thymus gland. It was Dr. Gonzalez's teacher, and Dr. Gonzalez is also known for learning bone marrow transport. He's a conventional doctor. He is out of New York, and he is helping tons of people along with his associate, Dr. Linda Isaacs. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, please welcome Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez to its rainmaking time. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's always great to have the opportunity to talk about our work. I want you to share with the audience the context in which proteolytic pancreatic enzymes, what this whole frame of reference is about, and if you could also explain the metabolic typing or this thing called metabolic efficiency out of which the sympathetic, the parasympathetic, and the balanced dominance, that whole system arises so that we have a frame of reference to receive you. Oh, sure. The main anti-cancer element of our program are the pancreatic enzymes. Now, the therapy overall involves three components, uh, individualized diet. The diets range from vegetarian to meat. Uh, we have 10 basic diets, 90 variations, aggressive supplement protocols. But the main anti-cancer element are the large doses of pancreatic enzymes. The third component would be detoxification. Now, it isn't my idea or even Dr. Kelly's idea that pancreatic enzymes have an anti-cancer effect. I mean, in orthodox physiology, they've been known since 1858 to have a digestive function. It was the very esteemed Scottish scientist, well, he was English by birth, but taught at the University of Edinburgh, John Beard, who in uh, 1902 first proposed that the pancreatic enzymes have an anti-cancer effect. And it was, to sum up a lot of years of research and a lot of information briefly, he basically was an expert in the mammalian placenta, which is the connection between the growing embryo and the mother's blood supply in the uterus, and that's how we mammals survive in embry as embryos. And the, that connection allows the embryo to get oxygen and nutrients from the mother and get rid of its metabolic waste. Beard was the first person to suggest that in its early incarnation, the placenta in its early stage, it's known as the trophoblast, is just like cancer. You know, it invades through the uterus like cancer, it grows rapidly like cancer, it migrates through the uterus like cancer, and it creates a rich blood supply, which is angiogenesis, so the beard didn't use that term. He said to the way it looks and the way it behaves, it's just like cancer. The difference is between the placenta and cancer is that at some point, the placenta changes from this aggressive, invading, malignant-like tissue that invades through the uterus to a very calm, mature placenta that stops invading, stops migrating, stops producing a blood supply and becomes a a non-invasive organ. And he spent years trying to figure out what was the signal that caused this extraordinary transformation from the early invasive cancer-like placenta into the mature organ. And he realized the very day the embryonic pancreas began to produce enzymes was the very day the placenta had this change. And there was no other correlation it could make with any other system, the immune system, the endocrine system, any of that. The only correlation it could make was the very day the placenta changed from this cancer-like invading tissue into the mature placenta was the very day the embryo began to produce pancreatic enzymes. And then he said, since the cancer is very much like the trophoblast slash placenta, and since pancreatic enzymes control placental growth and determine its destiny, pancreatic enzymes must be the body's main defense against cancer. And then he tested this both in animal studies and with human patients with enormous success. Unfortunately, this very promising non-toxic therapy that was, you know, there were papers in the, from the main, mainstream journals of that day, the Journal of the American Medical Association, New England Journal, British Medical Journal, reporting case studies of patients treated with enzymes under Beard's direction who had total regression of advanced disease. And even though this is 100 years ago, pathologists knew what cancer was. It wasn't like it was a mystery. They, they knew what pathologists were very sophisticated about what cancer was. And these people were properly diagnosed and had regression and lived normal lives. Um, unfortunately, Madame Curie at the same time proposed that radiation was a simple, easy cure for all cancer and also non-toxic. She was wrong on all counts. But by the time scientists realized that very few cancers responded to radiation, that it wasn't non-toxic but deadly. In fact, Madame Curie herself died from radiation poisoning. By that point, Beard was dead. He died in 1924. And it took just 
pure chance that occasionally researchers and practitioners like William Kelly would rediscover Beard's work and keep it alive. Otherwise, it could have been lost to obscurity. So Kelly, during the 1960s, revitalized Beard's approach and applied it and began applying it in patients himself with great success. And then in 1981, when I was a medical student working under Dr. Good, I had the opportunity to meet Dr. Kelly, and then Good supported a five-year research investigation of Kelly's results. So that's basically the context. It really develops an interesting story because it developed 100 years ago. It was famed embryologist Dr. Beard. Now, Beard was actually nominated for the Nobel Prize in 1906, not for his cancer work, which was extremely controversial, but because of his embryology research, which is still quoted in the mainstream textbooks today. He didn't get it because he was already so controversial. So it comes out of very eminent scientific pedigree, and it took people on the fringe, however, to keep it alive. And, of course, we've kept it alive, and we're trying to get the word out there to the world, and that's why shows like this are so important. So the main context in terms of pancreatic enzymes was the work of this uh, kind of uh, ivory tower embryologist, John Beard, working at the University of Edinburgh. He was a laboratory scientist spending Friday nights in his laboratory trying to figure out the placenta 100 years ago. Now, the second component, which she mentioned that she wanted me to discuss, was the concept of metabolic typing, which has become kind of a catchphrase today. And indeed, Dr. Kelly was the person who actually coined that phrase, you know, some 40 years ago, was the, really, the person who really brought that into prominence. It was Kelly's thesis, unlike a lot of conventional alternative practitioner, t- practitioners, that different people need different diets, that there isn't one diet for optimal health. And a lot of alternative practitioners, like Gerson or the macrobiotic people, believe one diet fits all. You know, the Pritikin and Orners people believe everyone should be a vegetarian, eating no animal products. Or Atkins was the exact opposite. He thought everyone should be on fatty red meat. Uh, the Mediterranean diet proponents say people should be on a balanced diet. You have all these different schools of thought and nutrition, both conventional alternative nutrition, proposing a different diet for all people, all humans, whatever their size, shape, form, genetics, color, sex, um, ancestry. They should all be on this particular diet. Kelly was a lot smarter than that. And he, in a sense, helped resolve the enormous conflict that exists in the nutritional world. You know, every time I pick up a nutrition book, it claims it has the answers to what diet and what supplements people should be on, which, of course, completely contradicts the previous 15 best-selling books. And Kelly realized that each, each of these people, Pritik and Ornis, Atkins, the Mediterranean people, had a part of the puzzle, but only a part, and that the human species are very variable. We come out of a lot of ecological niches, you know, from the Arctic Circle of the Eskimos to the Serengeti Plain to the High Andes to Swiss Alps, where there were different food supplies available. And in order to survive, people had to adjust to those food supplies. So there was never one diet for traditional cultures. You know, Weston Price, during the 1920s and 30s, traveled the world studying traditional cultures that at that time still existed. I mean, traditional cultures really don't exist anymore. Even the Eskimos are watching TV eating Rice Krispies. (laughs) But... In the 1920s and 30s, they still existed. There were these isolated cultures following traditional nutritional practices. And he traveled the world, again, from the Arctic of the Eskimos to the High Andes to the High Swiss Alps to the Aborigines living in Australia and New Zealand to the Serengeti Plate. And he found that traditional peoples followed a variety of different diets and thrived on a variety of different diets. I mean, the Eskimos were on an all-meat diet. If you think about it, in the Arctic Circle, there is no growing season. There are no fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and grains. The idea of the Department of Agricultural Food Pyramid is nonsense. If you're Eskimo, they have eight, ten months of winter. All there is is lichen. There's no, there's really no vegetable or plant foods. And they lived on meat. I mean, this, they were studied extensively. Their diet was 100% meat, 80% fat. Sorry to those people who think fat is the enemy of mankind. To an Eskimo, it was life-saving. They, their diet was 20% animal protein, 80% fat, and they thrived. When they moved into the towns and villages and adopted a lower-fat diet and started eating carbohydrates, that's when they started getting epidemic uh, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, even me- mental illness. As long as they followed their t- traditional high-fat diet, they thrived. I mean, the Maasai, extremely healthy people tradition, they lived on fatty raw milk, a fermented yogurt type of milk and blood. The Aborigines in Australia and New Zealand, more of a plant-based diet. Polynesians, more of a plant-based diet. The Swiss Alps herders, they lived on a, they had a very high-density whole-grain bread and a, a raw cheese that was very nutrient-dense, and they were in excellent health. As long as traditional cultures followed the traditional diet of their ancestors, they thrived, but the traditional diet of their ancestors varied enormously. And Kelly saw this, although he was not like Price, he didn't travel the world, he saw it in his own clinic in Grapevine, Texas, which is a suburb of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. He saw it in his own practice that if he tried to force everyone on a vegetarian diet, half his patients got sick. If he tried an all-meat diet, half of them got sick. And he realized different people needed different diets. 
eventually he had 10 basic diets and about 90 variations, which was all on his computer. And he divided his people into patients into three basic groups, the people that did well on a plant-based diet, people that did well on an animal, animal product-based diet, and the balanced people that did well with both plant and animal foods. Now, there were all kinds of variations of vegetarianism and levels of meat-eating, and he had different levels of balance, and the amount of raw food or cooked food would vary from diet to diet. So it was very sophisticated, all done through his computer analysis. And he was very intrigued. First, he made a serendipitous discovery in his clinic that different people seemed to do well with different diets, that there wasn't one-size-fits-all, one diet for all humans. There were two variable species would come out of two many different ecological niches, and we adjusted, our ancestors adjusted to a variety of diets that one diet would suit everybody. So he made that as an observation. He didn't initially know why, but he began to look into the physiology and biochemistry of why different people would do well with different diets. And that's where he came upon the autonomic nervous system, which you mentioned in terms of the sympathetic, parasympathetic. To sum up a very esoteric area of neurophysiology, very simply, the autonomic nervous system is named as a play on the word automatic. It was named by Langley at the turn of the last century. He was a very great physiology researcher at the University of Cambridge in England. And autonomic is a play on the word automatic. This is a nervous system that controls all physiological processes that don't really require conscious input, like respiration, cardiovascular function, heart rate, blood pressure, digestion, peristalsis, the secretion of enzymes from the pancreas, the secretion of insulin, the endocrine system, the thyroid, the adrenal glands. These systems and organs and tissues, they work without conscious input, and they're able to do that because of the autonomic nervous system. I mean, we don't have to sit from second to second saying, oops, I better have my heartbeat because i got to get blood going to my brain. Then the next second, I better have my heartbeat. You don't have to sit there consciously determining or controlling respiration, cardiovascular function, digestion, endocrine function. It happens automatically, autonomically, as Langley said, just played on that word. This is the system beyond conscious control to simplify it, and it's divided into two branches, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. And they have opposing functions, and they work, they work synergistically. They work together to try and maintain a kind of physiological equilibrium in every second of our lives. And the autonomic nervous system is active 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every single second of our lives. And there's this constant balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic function. Now, they have opposing effects. For example, when the sympathetic system fires, respiration tends to be very efficient. Heart rate goes up. Blood pressure goes up. Blood is shunted from the skin and the gut into the muscles and the brain. Um, when the sympathetic system fires, endocrine function increases, thyroid function, adrenal function, and you have an overall what's called a catabolic effect where the body starts breaking down tissues and organ, tissues and organ fat and organ protein to provide energy. In a time of stress, the sympathetic system is activated, and it breaks down tissues to provide energy in a time of stress so the brain can think fast and our muscles can react fast if we need to. So it's the perfect system for stress. Now, stress can be minor like... Um, giving a lecture or taking a final exam or presenting to your boss um, or driving in a crowded highway. It could be major, you know, like running away from a fire. But in each kind of stress that we face, the sympathetic system turns on, you know, hopefully appropriately so it doesn't overfire or underfire. So you, you have, you, so you're able to react appropriately to the environmental challenge. Now, the parasympathetic system is the opposite of the sympathetic system. The sympathetic system breaks down tissues to provide energy in a time of stress. The parasympathetic system builds up tissues. It's active at night. It tends to suppress respiration. It suppresses heart rate and lowers blood pressure, but increases the efficiency of digestion, the release of, the release of enzymes and uh, hydrochloric acid. It increases peristalsis, increases the breakdown, absorption, assimilation of nutrients. It increases metabolic repair and regeneration of every cell in our body. So during the day when we're active, the sympathetic system turns on, breaks down tissues at night, the parasympathetic turns on, and enhances digestion, assimilation of nutrients, the building up of tissues and organs rather than the breakdown, the anabolic effect as it's called. The parasympathetic system also tends to tone down endocrine function, which is important in a time of repair because the thyroid and the adrenals tend to break down tissue to provide energy when the parasympathetic virus turns down the endocrine system so you can build up your tissues. And they work together. Now, Kelly realized certain people have a very strong sympathetic system and a weak parasympathetic system, and all the tissues and organs stimulated by the sympathetic system, like the respiratory system, the heart, or the endocrine system, tended to be very active and efficient. And all those tissues normally stimulated by the weak, their weak parasympathetic, like the entire digestive system, including the liver and the pancreas, tended to be very weak and inefficient. Other people had a strong parasympathetic system and a weak sympathetic system, and 
these people had a very strong digestive system, but weak lungs, weak cardiovascular function, weak endocrine function. And then there were balanced people where these sympathetic and parasympathetic tend to be equally developed, equally efficient, and they tend to be the healthiest people. Now, Kelly realized that sympathetic dominance tend to do really well on a vegetarian diet. Parasympathetics tended to do well on a meat diet, and the balanced people somewhere in between uh, where they did well with plant foods and animal foods. And Kelly was the great expert on the effect of diet and supplements on autonomic function. And he realized that every dietary component, every nutrient, whatever else it may to do in terms of known biochemical reactions, had an effect on the autonomic nervous system. For example, a plant diet tends to suppress the sympathetic system and build up the parasympathetic system. And that tends in a sympathetic dominant, brings their out-of-balance autonomic system into balance, and then they function better. A meat diet tends to stimulate the sympathetic system. So in a parasympathetic dominant with a weak sympathetic system, a meat diet will stimulate the weak sympathetic system, tone down the strong parasympathetic system, bring their autonomic branches into balance, and they do better, whatever their disease, be it toenail fungus or brain cancer. With balanced people who eat uh, foods that both stimulate the sympathetic and the parasympathetic system, you're giving them foods that will keep both branches equally efficient. And Kelly really, in elegant neurophysiological detail, broke down the effect of every single vitamin and mineral and the, the micronutrients, the trace minerals, as well as the macronutrients like proteins, fats, and carbohydrates and in terms of their effect on autonomic function. For example, he found that saturated fats stimulated the sympathetic system, but alpha-linolenic alpha acid and linoleic acid, the omega-6 and omega-3 essential fatty acids, tended to stimulate the parasympathetic system. Uh, EPA and DHA, the omega-3 fatty acids from fish, had an opposite effect than the plant-based essential fatty acid. They tended to stimulate the sympathetic system. He found certain B vitamins like thiamine, riboflavin, niacin, pyridoxin, folic acid, toned down the sympathetic system, stimulated the parasympathetic system. Other B vitamins like B12, pantothenic acid, choline, inositol, PABA, tended to stimulate the sympathetic system. Um, vitamin D stimulates the parasympathetic system. E stimulates the sympathetic system. Calcium stimulates the sympathetic system. Magnesium, potassium stimulate the parasympathetic system. Mang manganese, chromium stimulate the parasympathetic. Zinc, selenium, the sympathetic. So he actually, I'm going through this quickly, of course, but in over a period of years, I mean, he was smarter than the rest of us. This would have taken a team of hundreds of scientists working 100 years to figure this out. What Kelly figured out in about 10 years, just working by himself, <clears throat> because he was blessed with an intelligence beyond what's uh, normally considered uh, brilliant. He was beyond that. Dr. Gonzalez, can you answer one thing, and I want to let you finish. Yes. Yeah. How the heck did he figure out how to test us for what was dominant in our bodies? Well, he actually had this very extensive questionnaire that was done. on. A, he, he actually developed a very extensive computer program working with IBM consultants. This is back in the 70s. That was extraordinarily sophisticated. The questionnaire had 3,200 questions, and they ranged from whether you had thick, thick or, uh, or thin saliva to how many hours of sleep did you need, whether you, whether you did better in the morning. Like sympathetic dominance tend to do well in the morning. Parasympathetics do terribly in the morning, do better in the evening. Um, whether you crave fat, whether you crave fruit. And it just had 3,200 questions. And based on this from his own clinical experience dealing with thousands of patients, he was able to computerize this so people would fill out the questionnaire and he would get exactly where they stood in terms of their sympathetic parasympathetic systems, uh, how efficient it was, how much raw food they needed, how much cooked food, how much vegetables, how many fruits, how much red meat. And it was just to that level of detail. And it was all done through this questionnaire. It was initially based on its observations in the clinic. He found that the different metabolic types had different personalities, different physiologies, different biochemistries, and tended to get different diseases. Like sympathetic dominance never sleep well because their system, their stress system is always turned on. They get, these are the people that get by in four or five hours of sleep and always complain about it, but feel great. And in the, you know, 7 a.m., they're in the office running the world. Parasympathetics need eight to 10 hours of sleep, even more, don't feel well in the morning, and gradually through the day wake up. And they can be very creative, do their best work at night. So they're not really suited for school where you've got to be alert in the morning. They never are. They don't do well in school, but they can be extremely creative like Thomas Edison, who did his best work at night. So he realized they had different personalities, different physiologies. Um, you know, sympathetics tended to have a rapid pulse, parasympathetics a slow pulse. So based on these um, precise differentiations, he was able to develop this computer questionnaire and very precisely and accurately determine the level of me um, metabolic typing, the level of autonomic balance. Now, there was a third category, right, called balanced. Well, the third, the balanced people were somewhere in between, which I mentioned. Their sympathetic and parasympathetics were equally developed, equally efficient. Um, and he would give both plant and animal foods and all the nutrients that would support each brand so they would stay in metabolic efficiency. They already start out balanced. Sometimes balanced people 
through wrong diet, if they don't eat, you know, if they eat junk food rather than wholesome organic food, for example, can be depleted in nutrients, and both branches will tend to collapse. So they're still balanced, but both branches are just not efficient. So Kelly would give them nutrients in a dietary program that would stimulate and, and support both branches of the autonomic system. So, yeah, the three types. The balanced people didn't tend to get cancer, which was one of Kelly's main interests. They, they, cancers tend to occur at the extremes of autonomic dominance, either sympathetic dominance or parasympathetic dominance. I can totally see how this paradigm and this body of discoveries and observations were off the charts for the medical industry at that time. Um, it's off the charts today. I mean, although there are, interestingly enough, when I, I read the medical journals regularly, and increasingly they're serendipitously discovering that some people seem to have a high sympathetic tone, other people seem to have a parasympathetic tone, they seem to have, you know, different personalities. Now, you know, Kelly just didn't make this up by himself. I mean, Francis Pottinger Sr. was one of the world's experts in autonomic physiology in the 20th century. He wrote a book called Symptoms of Visceral Disease. The first edition was 1919, last edition 1944, went through six editions. And it was actually used in in medical schools and osteopathic schools and chiropractic colleges, a textbook, unfortunately, it's kind of forgotten now. And in that book, he details in great, great precision the anatomy, physiology, biochemistry of the autonomic nervous system and discusses the fact that in his own experience that certain people have a strong sympathetic system, certain people have paras- strong parasympathetic, certain people are balanced, and they, get, they have different personalities, physiologies, biochemistries, and they tend to get different diseases. So there was precedent for what Kelly discovered. I mean, he, he actually relied a lot on Podger. Once Kelly realized that different people did well with different diets and he was trying to work out the physiology, he went to the basic text, and he really hit upon Pottinger. And there was another neurophysiologist at the University of Minnesota, Ernst Gellhorn, who also confirmed that uh, in different people, the autonomic nervous system will show different levels of dominance and that it will affect the psychology, physiology, and biochemistry, and health patterns. So there was scientific precedent for what Kelly did, but his achievement was enormous. And it was so far beyond what conventional physicians had been taught, could understand. Um, it's so far outside their model. I mean, it's a, it's a Kelly brought together basic neurophysiology and, and anthropological nutrition like Weston Price into this model where you use different diets and different supplements to manipulate the nervous system to bring people into ideal health. And it worked in practice. That was what was so amazing. It's an elaborate theory, and who cares if it's elaborate or not? In fact, it worked in practice, and we find that, you know, 40 years later, uh, we find that it works in practice. It's a, it's a model that actually allows medicine to become easy because you're not shooting in the dark all the time. Both conventional alternative doctors, often they shoot in the dark. You know, doctors just throw drugs at people. Often alternative doctors just throw nutrients at patients. With Kelly's model, you know what to do. If you have a parasympathetic dominance, you don't give them large doses of B1, B2, vitamin B. You don't do it. They're going to get worse. You know, he, he gave a model that was predictable and accurate, and it really simplified the practice of medicine. You know, Once you have a model to work with, you're not shooting in the dark. There's two things I want to say. One is that Dr. Kelly was an orthodontist. And I think because he was an orthodontist, when he was discovering all of this, he was an outsider from the get-go. Because he wasn't an oncologist, he didn't have the credentials of an oncologist. So he's an outsider speaking. And I think that was the first thing that worked against him in terms of introducing his findings, don't you? It, It worked against him and for him. Kelly always said if he'd been a physician he would have very easily accepted orthodoxy and been a very conventional professor at some medical school because he had an academic kind of a mind. But he was interested in tinkering and became an orthodontist and was a brilliant orthodontist and has patents in orthodontia that still hold up years, 50 years later. So had he been a conventional physician, he never would have discovered what he did because he was outside the mainstream of medicine. He was a dentist. Um, he had no preconceived notions of what the truth should be. And when he observed in his nutritional practice that certain people did well with different diets, he didn't question it. He saw it as a fact. He saw it in his practice. He didn't have a preconceived notion of what the truth had to be. He just accepted what he saw and then went to the medical literature and saw there was support for what he did. Um, but then on the other hand, you're absolutely right. Because he was an outsider on the fringe, not an impeccably trained academic medical researcher, no one took him seriously. They thought by definition, because he's a dentist, not a medical researcher, he must be a quack, a fraud, a charlatan, all of those names that were used against him. So you're right. The fact he was outside the medical mainstream allowed him to be creative. He had no, he, he was already outside the box. He didn't have to think outside the box. He was outside the box. He wasn't re- constrained by academic orthodoxy. But because he was outside the box, the box hated him. Right, exactly. People have the power and control. It created a whole other disassociation capacity that may not have been there otherwise. But nevertheless, he also didn't agree that the immune system protects us from cancer, but that protein digestive enzymes are the first line of defense. Can you explain why? 
Yeah, everybody in the cancer world, and I've trained as a classical cancer immunologist. As you said, I was trained to do bone marrow transplantation. So I was trained, my mentor, Robert Good, was the preeminent immunologist of the 20th century. So I know conventional immunology. Both conventional immunologists and, and alternative practitioners believe with cancer, you have to stimulate the immune system. It's almost like a knee-jerk response. Sunrises in the east, you have to stimulate the immune system. Sunrises in the east, you have to stimulate the immune system. Kelly said the immune system is really relevant. It's pancreatic enzymes that kill cancer. Beard said that 110 years ago. Kelly said it 40 years ago, 30 years ago. We say it today. He was right. Now, interestingly enough, for example, parasympathetic dominants tend to have a very strong immune system. In fact, their immune system is too strong, and they're prone to immune cancers like leukemia, lymphoma, multiple myeloma, and sarcomas which are connective tissue cancers that are related to immune cancers. Kelly said in those diseases, the immune system's too active, and you have to tone it down by toning down the overly strong parasympathetic system. In sympathetic dominance, the immune system tends to be suppressed. The sympathetic system suppresses immune function. Parasympathetic stimulates it. In sympathetic dominance, it is true their immune system is weak, but um, you know, orthodox conventional immunologists, including my boss, Robert, could try for 50 years to find some immune stimulant that would get rid of cancer unsuccessfully. To this day, immune immune treatments are really few and far between in terms of their successes. They really just haven't panned out. I mean, Good was made president of Sloan Kettering in 1972, promising that with immune therapies he would bring in the answer to cancer. Well, 10 years later, he was booted out because he hadn't done it. Uh, and he's, you know, to his death he was trying, but never could do it. So the immune system really has, and we believe, second, has a very secondary effect in terms of treating cancer. In fact, with the immune cancers, which we think are parasympathetic dominant tumors, you don't want to stimulate the immune system. You want to shut it off because it's already too active. Leukemia, lymphoma, myeloma are diseases of an overactive immune system. It's working too strong. You've got to shut it down. And we just don't find the immune system has a primary effect on cancer or is even a primary concern, which puts me at odds with both the alternative world and conventional immunology. Yes, exactly. That's why I'm bringing it up, because it's not to the left, it's not to the right, it's somewhere else. It's outer space. Yes. And every time I pick up an alternative journal, it's about with cancer. You have to stimulate the immune system. Where? Where does it say you have to stimulate the immune system? Where's the success of stimulating the immune system? Interferon, interleukin, boondoggles, billions of dollars in research on those things led nowhere. They don't, they don't cure cancer. They don't have the effect that was hoped. So even in the conventional world, where they latched onto immune therapy, you know, there were, there were cover stories in the mid-1980s about interleukin, the cure, interleukin, the cure for cancer. Well, 20 years later, hardly anyone uses it because it didn't turn out to be the cure for cancer. So the, the orthodox research world has invested tens of billions, well, billions, in looking for the immune tr- treatment for cancer that would be successful, unsuccessfully. Uh, so in the alternative world, I hear it all the time. It's just a catchphrase, and I just don't, it's it's not relevant to our way of thinking. We think of the immune system as no more important or no less important than any other system, like the respiratory, cardiovascular, gastrointestinal, endocrine. It's like any other system, important in its own way, but it's not critical for cancer any more than any, any other physiological biochemical system is critical for cancer. Dr. John Beard said that enzymes digest away tumors. Why and how? Well, unfortunately, no one's ever put up the money to do the basic science research. We've done some animal studies. We got funding from Nestle to do that, so we do know they have an anti-cancer effect. But no one's actually looked at the molecular mechanism, so it's really hypothetical. Beard believe they just start digesting away the cell membranes. And, you know, we do know now, you know, 100 years later, the cell membranes of cancer are far different than the cell membranes of normal tissue. For example, cell membranes of cancer have an opposite electrical charge. All membranes have a charge. In cancer, it's the opposite of normal tissue. That's one way you can distinguish them. Also, cancer cells have completely different proteins on their membrane, which are critical for cell communication. They serve as pores to bring in nutrients to get rid of waste. They're like channels through the cell membrane. And the proteins that make up these channels and these pores in in cancer cells are different from those in normal tissue. And Beard suspected that the enzymes can chew up the proteins in these membrane components of cancer tissues, but leave the normal membranes alone. That's why I can take a thousand capsules of enzyme. I'm not going to auto digest and turn it into a pile of amino acids and fat globules. <laughs> it, you know, I'll just get a little stomach ache if I took a thousand capsules. But they don't digest my tissues. Pancreatic enzymes will digest meat, but they don't digest, they don't digest normal tissue. I mean, in pancreatitis, we have a tumor blocking the pancreas. The enzymes can start auto digesting and cause problems in the pancreas. But generally, you know, they circulate in the bloodstream. They're not digesting you know, our way our tissues. I want to talk about Steve Jobs with you. None of us want Steve Jobs to die. Yeah, including me. Guys, another Thomas Edison, you know, who wants him to die? It's just terrible. I was wondering if there's a way to get to him or do you think it's Um, too far in? 
Now, Steve Jobs, you know, has really fancy doctors at Stanford, and one of the one of the problems is it's wonderful to be successful and rich. One of the problems with being successful and rich is that conventional physicians at the highest level tend to court you. Uh, you know, they 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 see fame, fortune, ego, all those things. I mean, well intentioned, of course, too. They want to help the guy, uh, but he's surrounded by very fancy doctors. Now, Steve Jobs very well knows who I am. Um, people have reached out to him. So he knows who I am. Um, he's just made the choice not to come, which I respect. He didn't have to come see me. That's his choice. Um, I think it's a bad choice, and I, I hear he's sick. You know, I just I know no more than what I read in the newspapers. I don't know him, but he does know me, and people have reached out to him, and I've been discussed with him. But he's made the choice to. He does some alternative things. I've been told, secondarily through second-hand sources, but he's basically following conventional therapy. You know, he had a liver transplant, all these fancy things that he can afford to do. So he's surrounded by, you know, uh, conventional docs. And then Michael Landon is another example, going back 20 years. You know, he da- did actually come meet me. He was interested. But I wasn't fancy enough, and he went back and did chemotherapy. He was dead three months later, which was tragic. And he did a little bit of carriages, but he basically was getting very aggressive experimental chemo that did absolutely nothing for him. In fact, people around him who remain friends of mine today, I became friends with some of his inner circle, tell me that they think the chemo killed him, that it shortened his life. I have to tell you something. I have a dear friend who's always been a complementary medicine person, an alternative medicine person who developed a tumor behind her nose and ran out of insurance and ended up at the county of Los Angeles. And they've been radiating her five days a week for six weeks and giving her super chemo two days a week in the hospital. And she's practically near death. Yeah, it's sad. And they told her that they don't even know what she has. They said her organ systems are in better shape than theirs are, but they're radiating her and giving her chemo. Oh, they'll change that. By the time they're finished, her organ systems will be barely functional with all the toxic therapies they're using. Yeah, it's it's interesting that, you know, alternative practitioners who do cancer work always get criticized. This is unproven. This is, this is nonsense. All that. And yet conventional doctors routinely use unproven therapies in their patients, routinely. Um, we, I, when I they was, don't even know what it is, and they said we just got to radiate it. We got to get rid of that thing and shrink it. Meanwhile, it's her that's shrinking. Well, it was her decision to get that of therapy course. too. She made the choice, and uh, you know she took a risk. And I, I'm sure her doctors mean well and are just hoping against hope. But it's very common for oncologists to use therapies that are, have absolutely no scientific justification, no proof behind them, just because they're, they're desperate to do something. That's a very common uh, com- common proceeding and common outcome. In your experience now, how many people come to you after they've had rounds of chemo and radiation? Um, I would say the majority. We haven't really done a statistical breakdown, but just my... Just in your gut experience. Gut feeling. Most of the patients we see have already tried conventional therapy. Now, sometimes we'll get pancreatic cancer patients when they're diagnosed, know that conventional therapy doesn't work, and they come see us. But even with their pancreas patients, a lot of them, when they call the office, they've already had chemo. Even though it doesn't work, they go and do it anyway. They have radiation, even though it doesn't work. Um, I had a patient in today with metastatic colon cancer. He'd been a patient for a year in the liver and the lungs. He had did all the right things, had surgery initially, followed with chemo, said he was cured. Six months later, it occurred in his liver, had surgery, had very aggressive chemo, recurred, had more chemo, got so sick he said, I'm not going to do it anymore. After all that chemo, he had multiple tumors in his lungs and his liver, came to see me. That's not an unusual situation where a patient will be very highly treated before they come see us. It makes it tougher because their bodies are so toxic. But he's doing well. He's with us over a year now, and he seems to be doing fine. Uh, It's a miracle he's alive a year already because he he failed three chemo regimens and had cancer at multiple tumors in his liver and his lungs. But he's doing fine and recuperating and mountain biking and doing all kinds of great things. So um, most of the patients we see have had prior therapy. So aren't they already weakened? They come oh, yeah. in with weakened immunity, correct, and weakened organ systems, right? They come in. They come in really toxic and really sick. I mean, I've had patients where I've had pa- not everyone in our office gets well. Of course, we've had patients who died, and I know it's because of the overuse of pre- previous therapy. I had a patient. 20 years ago, had a really aggressive brain cancer, and they did an experimental protocol where they put radiation implants into her brain and left them there. Well, it was an NIH study that they stopped because they found that the patients getting this radiation implant therapy were dying faster than the ones that weren't getting it. She unfortunately had it done, and her tumors went away. She was with me two and a half years, woke up one day, had a grand mal seizure and died, had an autopsy, and her brain had literally gelled from the radiation. It just one day, it just... That happens with radiation where you can tool along and do okay, and then one day the side effects just 24 hours can kill you. 
her brain had literally gelled. She'd reached a critical threshold mass point and it just gelled, and she died, not from the tumor, which was gone, but from the radiation implants that were still in her brain doing destruction. Why are we still radiating people? I don't get that. What is the philosophy behind the radiating? Well, when Madame Curie got interested in radiation 100 years ago, she thought this was the simple, easy answer for all cancer and non-toxic as well, perfect, you know, perfect storm against cancer. Well, none of that was true, of course, as I said earlier. But it can make tumors shrink. It can be useful in certain circumstances. Like if a patient calls me and they're having grand mal seizures from a brain tumor, we can't treat them. Radiation can shrink those tumors down, particularly today with the gamma knife and the now you know it's no longer the shotgun the old days the old days 10 15 years ago radiation was like a shotgun wherever they use it. now they have a more like a laser beam where it's very precise localized low dose and they can really target the tumor not the adjacent normal tissues and it can shrink tumors it's not going to cure it but it can shrink tumors um, there are a few there are a couple cancers that really can be cured with radiation like early stage hodgkins in the lungs they can cure it with radiation they're few and far between there are 100 different types of cancer very few you can get curative effect with radiation. There are a couple, like Hodgkin's certain lymphomas. Anal cancer actually responds to radiation. But most of them, you can get tumor shrinkage. Now, if you have someone who's having grand mal seizures, you've got to do something. Radiation can help. You have somebody who's facing a collapsing vertebral body from metastatic breast or prostate cancer into the spine. Radiation can stabilize the bone. So there are, there are indications, or even I will say in an emergency situation, you got to use radiation to stabilize. They're going to have collapsed cervical spine and end up paralyzed. So radiation has some benefit in certain circumstances. You just have to use it widely. I mean, the, the just blind use of radiation against any cancer, like nuclear, using nuclear bombs randomly, is just not sensible, reasonable, or scientifically justifiable. But for certain circumstances, like collapsing vertebral bodies, if we're worried about a fracture in a hip, brain tumors, Someone who can't breathe with a lung tumor, they can shrink it down. won't cure it, but it'll shrink it. So it gives them time so they can do it, for example. So it's a buying time measure. They can buy time, right. Have, has radiation ever dissolved tumors? In Hodgkin's disease, it's in localized disease, it has dissolved tumors and actually cured some people. To give, you know, to give the devil its due, there are certain circumstances where it's curative. Okay, well, that's good to know. I want to ask you about coffee enemas. And I want to also ask you about, by the time people come to you, they're very ill. But do you ever see people who are healthy? Yeah, we do. I mean, the misconception is we only treat very sick cancer patients. Well, we treat other things like chronic fatigue, multiple sclerosis, a lot of other problems for which there aren't standard therapies that work too well. We have dozens and dozens of patients with chronic fatigue. I live in a Lyme area, Lyme disease area in New York City. Uh, we're surrounding Lyme, Connecticut, where it's first uh, first. Dis- discovered is not 50 miles away. So we're kind of in a Lyme area here. I, I never was interested in Lyme, but a lot of people came to me desperate, so we started treating them, and they've done really well. So we treat a variety of diseases. Most of them have cancer, though. That's true. We do treat, And we do treat healthy people. Very often what will happen is the spouse of a patient will, who's doing well will go on the program. We have patients that come to us just for prevention. So, I mean, I follow my own program for prevention. I couldn't survive 14-hour days dealing with very sick people from all over the world taking on the medical world if they weren't in good health. Let's talk about the coffee enemas for a bit. Yeah. They've gotten a lot of flack, and I know Dr. Victor Herbert attacked the coffee enemas, and there's been a lot of attacks on it, but it's been proven to be very effective. I'd like you to share a bit with the audience about it and your experience of it as well. Yeah, it's, it's always kind of odd to me. Nothing elicits more rancor, derision, laughter, criticism, mockery than our use of coffee enemas or Kelly's use of coffee enemas. The paradoxical, paradoxical irony is that coffee enemas come right out of the orthodox medical literature. Kelly started using coffee enemas as always, not because he claims he had some kind of moonbeam coming down from an alien spaceship that told him to use them or for some alternative journal. He learned about it from the Merck Manual, which is a compendium of conventional therapies. Coffee enemas were in the Merck Manual from 1899 right up to about 1977, and they were removed only because they seemed too folksy, not because they weren't working. Most nursing techs recommended coffee enemas right through the 1960s. I have dozens of uh, articles and papers and textbook chapters discussing coffee enemas. They were routinely used. I mean, in 1922, there was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine, the New England Journal, the preeminent medical journal in the world, discussing the use of coffee, coffee enemas in rectal installations by a group of Harvard psychologists where they were treating bipolar, what we call today bipolar illness, successfully. And they were getting these people out of the hospital. And they proposed that the animals were getting rid of uh, all kinds of toxic debris that was poisoning the brain. 
I was in the New England Journal. I have dozens of papers from major mainstream journals, peer-reviewed articles in mainstream journals, discussing the successful use of coffee enemas and other rectal installations in the 1920s and 30s, right up to the 40s, when the doctors weren't too fancy, when they would use whatever worked. They didn't think it was too folksy. And you know, what's odd is that conventional physicians even today routinely use rectal installations. For example, if you have a patient, a cancer patient on chemo with terrible nausea, doctors use composine suppositories, which is an anti-nausea medication because the patients can't take them orally. Morphine is given rectally because it's very quickly absorbed. Theoplin, which is used to treat asthma, can be used rectally when patients are in status asthmaticus where they're choking. You just stick a rectal suppository of theophylline. It helps. So the doctors know that the rectal root is a very good way to absorb medication. I don't know why they would find it so funny that coffee, which contains um, caffeine, which is a very active drug, is absorbed quickly. You know, Caffeine is actually related to theophylline, the asthma drug. And it stimulates the liver to release all its toxins. And oddly enough, when you drink coffee, it tends to suppress the liver. But when you take it rectally, it stimulates parasympathetic nerves in the lower bowel that when they're turned on, feedback to the liver. And within seconds, cause the liver to release all its toxins. The liver basically helps both phase one, phase two detoxification systems within the liver. And with cancer patients, you know, these people are very toxic. First, they've had all kinds of toxic therapy usually before they see us. Secondly, tumors are very abnormal collections of cells, and they produce all kinds of molecules that are foreign and toxic to normal healthy tissue. It's great that the enzymes can break down a tumor, but then you get all this toxic dead tumors circulating in the bloodstream. It could overload the liver, which is the body's main detoxification organ. Coffee enemas help the liver to work better, help them mobilize, neutralize, and excrete all this dead tumor waste. They can be life-saving. I have an article from the South American Journal in about 1944, where they used coffee enemas in a hospital setting to treat successfully septic shock, which in those days was like 90% deadly. And still, maybe 35% of patients survive. This is when patients get so infected, they start having uh, just multi-system breakdown in their bodies. Coffee enemas saved people and was in the literature. And doctors 50, 60, 70 years ago weren't so fancy that if it wasn't high-tech pharmaceutical uh, approaches that they they were just not interested. They were different. They used whatever worked. And enemas worked. There's a long history of them. They come right out of conventional medicine. And the doctors that laugh or deride them just are ignorant of that. There's, um, you know, there's no, nothing more sad than ignorance. And in the case of coffee enemas, ignorance is widespread. So how do you do it? How do you actually physically do it? You brew, you first, you have to use organic coffee. And you have to have the caffeine. Decaf coffee won't work. It has to be caffeinated. And we have, uh, for our patients, we have organic coffee from Latin America, very clean stuff. And you brew it the way you'd normally brew coffee. You want to use a coffee maker that doesn't have aluminum in it. We use one from Cuisinart that's stainless steel, my wife and I. But there are stainless steel percolators and uh, glass strip systems. You just make it the way you'd normally brew coffee. Two tablespoons per quart is the standard starting dose that we use. And we have enema bags that our supplier provides for patients. You can get them on the Internet. There are all kinds of enema buckets and enema bags available. And we have patients, you know, it has to be body temperature. You don't want it hot. You burn yourself, not too cold. You want it body temperature and kind of lukewarm. You, we have patients, there are different theories about how to do it. We have patients, you know, lie on their left side. Gerson said the right side. We say the left side. You lubricate the rectal area, and then you insert the enema tube about 12 inches and let a pint in, and you hold it for 10 minutes, and you poop it out. And then We have patients do two pints each morning, each health for 10 minutes, and then for cancer patients in the afternoon, they do another two pints, each health for 10 minutes. Four pints a day, two sessions, two in the morning, two in the afternoon. Wow. And how many do you do a day yourself? I do two in the morning, 10, ten minutes each time. And I use it productively. I, I get a lot of reading done, so it, it forces me to try and uh, be smart because you can't do anything else when you do an enema, so I do reading. I get a lot of technical reading done. So if we were thinking of a card and we talk about cleaning your oil or making sure your engine's clean, how would we relate to this procedure? A very good analogy, actually. You know, everybody who owns a car, particularly if you own a really good car, you know that oil has to be changed. Nothing destroys more cars than not changing your oil, because you get all kinds of toxic debris in the in the carburetors, and you have to change the oil regularly. And this is no different. You know, traditional peoples always had detoxification routines. They would once a year. A lot of these traditional cultures would use certain herbs and techniques to get rid of parasites, for example. Um, they would do purges and fasts, and they all knew about this. They knew that there were toxins in the body. I mean, they didn't know the biochemistry, but they knew there were toxins in the body that you had to clean out just from living, and it was accepted. You know, even the Bible has, you know, in the, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, has all kinds of instructions on detox and fasting and how to de- basically detoxification. It's quite interesting, and they're very elaborate. 
I mean, all traditional cultures. I mean, the, the coffee enemas were used by the Egyptians. It's in the Egyptian medical writings. So they've been around for, you know, 4,000 years. So all traditional cultures accepted the fact that this daily living is going to produce noxious materials in the body and, that need, and you need help to get rid of them efficiently. And they didn't think twice about it. You know, even uh, I hear stories from people's grandparents that said, you know, we were raised, we would purge occasionally, and they would do enemas. Enemas were widely accepted, you know, 100 years ago. And purges, and castrol purges, and these kind of things. They were just part of the yearly routine. I have patients who say that, you know, the grandparents would have their have their, their their parents purge once a year just to get rid of junk. And it was an accepted way of living, which we've forgotten in our high-tech, industrialized, synthetic food, industrial agriculture world. Don't you think a lot of people are very embarrassed about this procedure and for some reason thinking that they have to clean out a part of their body that's related to their rectum? <laughs> I mean, seriously. Well, you know, my attitude about that is get over it or, you know, be sick. I mean, it's, you know, it's easy. You know my, my goal in life isn't to convince somebody they should do anything. And if people are too embarrassed to do it, don't do it. But don't you can't be my patient. Um, you know, I've done it for 30 years. When I met Kelly, he explained it. I went to the literature. Everything he said was true. It was in the Merck Manual. He showed it to me. He said, I'm vilified because of coffee enemas. I got right out of the... He had his copy of the Merck Manual from the 1960s. He showed me where it was. I actually wrote to the, editor, the then editor of the Merck Manual and said, yeah, they were recommended for years. They had files on them. Um, you know, if somebody is vomiting when they're getting chemo, nobody gets embarrassed because they use a rectal suppository of composite. It's standard care, and patients, the nurse does it, and the patients do it. And they say, oh, this is too embarrassing. They do it because their life's at stake. Well, coffee enemas are the same thing. You know, if patients have no problem uh, living in a toxic world and not doing anything, get rid of that junk, uh, fine with me. Now, I was once at a conference in a kind of a smart guy doctor who kind of was kind of snickering when I was talking about him is at the end of the kind of was very polite at the end of the conference he kind of in a confrontational tone mildly confrontational he wasn't offensive he said Dr. Gonzalez coffee enemas are completely abnormal and he just sat down and waited for me to respond and I said you know you're absolutely right and he I thought he was going to fall out of his chair he was so dumbfounded I said you're completely totally right coffee enemas are completely abnormal and when you, I pointed to him, when you make the world perfect with no pollution, then I'll stop doing them. Until that point, I'm going to keep doing them. The trouble is we live in a world that is abnormal. With the patients say, well, why do we have to do them? It's not normal. Yeah, well, we were designed to live in the Western Price world, traditional cultures without pollution, eating perfect food. None of us live that way. We're loaded with toxins. Every year, pollution, I've not read that it's getting better. There are 79,000 different synthetic chemicals being used used in the U.S., most of which have never been tested for safety. And these are chemicals our livers were not designed to deal with. They didn't exist 50 years ago. We're exposed to a whole new onslaught of toxic chemicals and genetically modified food and pesticides and heavy metals that we never were exposed to before, not in the quantities today. Let alone what's in our water. Oh, geez, water. I mean, of course, I only recommend filtered water. Water is a disaster. Chlorine is carcinogenic. Fluoride is a poison. It's how it kills bacteria in your mouth. It poisons them. It's an enzyme poison. It knocks out pancreatic enzymes. So we're exposed to all kinds of toxins and drugs and pharmaceuticals and heavy metals and pesticides and lousy food and genetically modified food, which is toxic. And our bodies aren't designed to deal with this efficiently. You need extraordinary interventions in order to keep our bodies healthy in the world today. And when that doctor, whoever he was, can make the world perfect again, I will stop doing enemas. Until, we, until, we, until that time, as long as we live in a very abnormal, toxic world, I'm going to have to do abnormal things like coffee enemas. To keep, although I, having said that, I'll also go back to my original point that all traditional cultures, even living an ideal life with perfect food and a clean environment, still did detoxifications. All the traditional cultures did. It's fascinating what you're saying. Don't you think that in terms of Chinese medicine, they say that the liver is where the action is in so many things, and yet if you're doing these coffee enemas, you're detoxing the liver. Yeah, coffee enemas are there primarily to help the liver work better. I mean, they do help with intestinal function. They're great for constipation, but their main function is to help the liver work better. Yeah, Chinese medicine people really focus on the liver correctly. Uh, you know, they, they see it as a, certain emotions are associated with the liver, like anger. Uh, toxicity in the liver produces anger. Anger can produce toxicity in the liver. Liver toxicity can produce anger. It goes both ways. So the, the Chinese are very sophisticated as attributing certain emotional states and disease states to different organ systems and organs, and they absolutely do focus on the liver as a key area, and it is certainly key. I mean, in Chinese medicine, I'm not an expert, but my understanding is they think the liver is more important than the heart. So it's really an important... Well, you know, we know it's got about 10,000 functions. It's 
the digestive organ, the main detoxification organ. It does all kinds of things. It's required for the processing of proteins, fats, carbohydrates. It can make blood sugar. It can release blood sugar. It can make triglycerides. It can make, we make cholesterol in the liver. 80% of the body's cholesterol is made in the liver. It has all these extraordinary synthetic capabilities. And in addition, it gets rid of drugs, the 79,000 chemicals I mentioned. The liver can really do a very good job getting rid of them, but trouble is we are overloading it in this day and age. So the liver is key. I agree. There are people that would say you're going to create an imbalance to your electrolytes if you do too many enemas. I want you to respond to that because that's yeah, a big one. Yeah. When I was doing my research into Kelly, there were those two famous cases of people died from coffee animals. Well, you know, 7,000 people die each year from drowning. That doesn't mean you shouldn't take a bath or you shouldn't shower because water is dangerous. It means you've got to be careful. There was, I actually investigated these cases. There was one case of a woman, she clearly was mentally ill, who had gastroenteritis and was throwing up and had diarrhea and on her own was doing four to five enemas an hour and after about 32 enemas had a seizure and died. Well, she had... She had diarrhea and was vomiting, which can cause an electrolyte disturbance and die. So the Seattle coroner and his genius said, this is a death attributed to coffee enemas. Well, uh, yeah, you know, 32 enemas a day. No one would tell her to do that. Um, and the other case was a patient with advanced uh, metastatic breast cancer in the liver, the lungs, and the brain who'd been treated unsuccessfully with chemo and more chemo and more chemo, went to an alternative clinic in Mexico, was doing enemas and had a seizure and died, but she had brain tumors, and the Seattle coroner could not really say that the coffee enemas had created an electrolyte balance, but claimed that because she was doing enemas, that's what killed her, forgetting the fact that she had widely metastatic breast cancer into every organ in her body and had failed chemotherapy. So the cases, and there are only about three that I've been able to find, are really, to say the least, kind of sparse and weak, and far more people die each day, each day from chemotherapy. These are three cases in the last 30 years that I've been able to find, and I've searched the entire world's literature. There are about three patients dying every hour from direct effects or indirect effects of chemo and radiation. So you have to put it in context. They're not dangerous. I mean, uh, the, the, I've never, in fact, when I was in research under Dr. Good, just to prove how safe they were, I did 12 enemas a day for about, I don't remember, it was two weeks, and I checked my electrolytes, and they were perfectly fine. I mean, it was a kind of a, boring to do 12 enemas a day, but I just want to prove how safe they were, and they didn't change my electrolytes at all. That's I actually wrote to the Seattle coroner and didn't answer me. Then I called him and didn't take the call. It's in a spe special delivery letter, which he didn't answer. Because I, I confronted him. I said, I, I don't agree with your findings. He, he reported two cases of death due to coffee enemas was the name of the article. And I, I thought his, his conclusions were nonsensical, that his, his, his prejudice overcame his common sense. And he never answered me, which and I was in you know, conventional research at that time, which was inappropriate. If there's a question about the, your, your research, you always answer. And he didn't. I sent several letters, several calls, never answered him. So, you know, I wasn't impressed. And I've not been, there was one case, uh, the Southwest Medical Journal of a woman, with, again, with advanced cancer that ended up with sepsis. But the, even the author was actually um, very calm about it. He says, you know, we, advanced cancer patients who had chemo radiation developed sepsis with a bacterial infection that killed her. It, could the coffee enemas have contributed to it? Probably. Uh, they, they may have, but it's... I don't see that. I mean, this is one case. But it's a whole systems thing. There are other things that were going on that were not reported. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. In these that's cases, the like the Seattle Corner case, I actually tracked down the, the cases. I actually tracked them down. I was able to do that. And the, the, the woman who was doing that four enemas an hour with, with vomiting and diarrhea, you end up dead from vomiting and diarrhea if it's untreated. And she was, you know, obviously not with it and was doing this on her own instead of going to an emergency room getting a rehydration for her dehydration. So there are like three cases that I've been able to find, and they're just, you know, really not very impressive. And, you know, I've treated thousands of patients with coffee enemas. The Gerson people have treated tens of thousands of patients over the last, you know, 60 years with coffee enemas. So basically, even a person in good health can do a coffee enema a day and get great value out of it, correct? Look, I think everyone should do coffee enemas because and people say, well, well, the world's abnormal. And, you know, my liver was not designed to deal with uh, 2011 toxicity. It wasn't designed to do that. It was designed to deal with, uh, you know, 4,000 years ago toxicity, not today's toxicity. And it needs extra things. And I do them. I've done them for 30 years, and I, I, I know they help my health. Um, do you, you know, feel my... better after you do it? Always. I have, since the first day I did it under Kelly's direction, um, I felt better. And, you know, I grew up on junk food. When I was in college, I used to eat Twinkies for lunch. Can you imagine an adult college student eating Twinkies for lunch? Yeah, I was there. I was doing that. I wasn't raised doing coffee enemas. Um, I, had, I had very good genes, so I got through it and was able to, you know, take good nutrition out of junk food. I was, otherwise, I'd have been sick as a dog. 
But when I met Kelly, had I continued eating that way, I've ended up in problems. But I started doing the program. I did the enemas, and I felt great from the first day. Never looked back. Your liver must be incredibly clean. Um, I'd like to think so. Really? <laughs> you should have your liver checked. Yeah, well, I have. I know I've done ultrasounds, and it looks great. And, you know, we, I have to do blood work and all that. My liver's in great shape. Let's talk about the supplements that people take, because... I know the vast majority of the people that come to you are already ill, but not all supplements are the same, and that's why Dr. Kelly had to make his own, and you also have your own made. Explain why. Yeah, first, you know, we're using supplements for a specific reason. We're using it to manipulate the autonomic nervous system. That's the reason we use supplements. You know, in the alternative world, conventionally, antioxidants do this. Antioxidants protect against cancer. I don't care about that. I care about what effect each vitamin, mineral, trace element, fat, protein, has, amino acid has on the autonomic nervous system. And Kelly designed his supplements, and we've designed our supplements based on that approach. That we that when we have supplements for our meat eaters, supplements for our vegetarians, supplements for our parasympathetic dominance, sympathetic dominance, balanced people. And they're completely different. It's like they're different species, and the forms vary. Like the calcium that a sympathetic dominant does best with is different than the calcium that a parasympathetic does best with, and you have to be that precise, otherwise you're going to get cockeyed results. So we've designed our own supplements, and we use them very precisely with the, with the goal of bringing the autonomic nervous system into balance. So it's a completely different approach, hypothesis, thesis, theory, than both conventional alternative doctors interested in nutrition employ. Uh, so that's the way we approach it. And this, the, the supplements we need for that purpose are not available in the health food stores, and no one knows anything about it. No one cares about that. So we had to design our own supplements. And also, most pancreatic enzymes out there commercially over-the-counter as prescription items are not really made very well. And we had to develop our own process for making enzymes, which took a lot of time and money, but they really are made the way we want, and they're made by the process that we use. That doesn't, most enzymes are extracted using very toxic chemicals. Our enzymes are made without the input of any toxic chemicals at all. So we had to find a way to make enzymes that didn't involve using toxic alcohols and really nasty chemicals. And also they're made in New Zealand, am I correct? Yeah, they're made in New Zealand, and we use New Zealand-raised pigs. New Zealand has the strongest laws for raising animals. They never had mad cow, trichinosis, foot and mouth disease. Uh, you can eat raw pork in New Zealand if you wanted to. Um, and their animals are all grass-fed. They don't, they don't use feedlots. So... It's the cleanest stuff. It's first. It's the cleanest environment left on Earth, and the cleanest animals with the strictest laws. So that's where we get our pancreatic enzymes, which are made from the pork pancreas. You know, they slaughter the animals for the meat industry, and we just buy their pancreases and use them to make enzymes. Do you think there will be a time when becoming a patient of yours, since you and your associate Linda, you're the only two people in the country doing what you're doing, the way that you're doing it, using the model and the exact precision of Dr. Kelly's model. Do you think there will come a time when the affordability quotient of becoming a patient will go down, kind of like computers go down over time? Or do you think that there's only so many hours in a day? And Well, the thing is, we don't run an assembly line. You right. Know, people say we're not cheap. Well, you know, I'll spend four to five hours with each new patient. Um, I don't shun it off to a, you know, a nurse or a physician's assistant or a technician. I do it myself. And when you're dealing with life and death, you really have to know who your patient is, because, and especially in our situation where people are all over the world, they can't come in just for an office visit if they have a headache. And I have to make you know, quick decisions on management with very sick patients, often over the phone, uh, based on you know, our, our therapy. It's a lot of time. I mean, uh, you know, I don't, first, I don't want to run an assembly line. I want to give people the time they need. And to do this kind of metabolic therapy really requires time. And any conventional alternative doctor that doesn't, isn't willing to invest the time really shouldn't be doing this therapy. It isn't, you know, chemotherapy is cookbook. You have the, the little book which has all the doses. That this is the cancer, this is the drugs you use, and this is the doses according to weight. You know, and a, a, a technician or a nurse can do it. it doesn't, it's just cookbook stuff. And a lot of alternative medicine is the same. You know, cancer, you give this dose of vitamin C, intravenous, etc. With us, everything's individualized. It takes a lot of time. You have to explain patients how to do it. I mean, yeah, we could train people how to do it, but you know, you also have to bond with your patients because you're in the trenches with these folks. You want to know who they are and they're how they're thinking and, you know, all those things, because their mood, their attitude, all those things play into how they're going to do. Do they have to be a New York resident to become your patient? No, most of my patients are not from New York. We have an international practice. I have patients from Singapore to Israel, and most of them are not from New York. We have New York patients, of course, but most of them are not from New York. They're all over the country. I don't know if they're 50 states, but just about. Do they have to do blood work? Most of the patients we see have been tested, you know, extensively, but we they have to do basic blood work and... Uh, 
you know, have their medical records sent to us. If it's Lyme disease or brain cancer, we have to see their medical records and blood work. And if they don't have blood work, we order it. So it's standard doctor-type stuff. And, we, you know, we do scans and all that, but we, we use them cautiously. CAT scans have a lot of radiation. You've got to be careful about overusing them. So we do standard testing in addition to our own testing to determine the metabolic type. It's a very exciting world that you live in. Well, it's never dull, I'll say that. It's a lot of work, but it's never dull. I mean, you have to, you know, this is another thing for other doctors. You really have to work hard to do this because you'll have, you know, 10 patients on 10 different diets, and you've got to know the intricacies of every diet and every supplement program, and it sounds overwhelming, but, you know, you get good at it. You just know. So you, you, but it takes some training. This is not something, you know, I, I lecture, as you know, and often I'm going to lecture to a group of doctors in late June in, in Las Vegas, and often it's frustrating because doctors go to these seminars thinking in, in two hours they're going to learn how to do the Gonzales treatment. You know, I lived in Kelly's house over a period of time for two years. Yes, I was doing research and investigating his cases, but I really learned, I watched him work. I watched him deal with his patients. You know, I really learned how he did it. Um, yes, no one can spend, a practicing doctor can't spend two years away from his office learning how to do something, but you can't learn it in two hours either. It's too complex, and the, and the model that doctors have been trained in either conventional alternative isn't suited for the model we use. It's a, we use a totally different model. You've obviously been well-received by the life extension community. I mean, you were in Suzanne Summers' book, The Doctors Who Were Curing Cancer. There's a certain portion of them that are receiving you, Correct. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, we have a lot of supporters, and like Suzanne's become a good friend, and she's writing another book on anti-aging where she's going to, she said she's going to interview me. Uh, it may or may not happen, but we're going to talk about things other than cancer, how to keep people healthy with good, you know, individualized nutrition. So, oh, yeah, there are a lot of people interested in our work. In fact, this this group in June is uh, the uh, America, what are the A4M? A4M, yeah, I'm blanking. A4M, <laughs> and it's their oncology group. And um, then they want me to speak in December at their big 6,000 attendee conference. You know, th- this thing in June is going to be three and a half hours of me yip yapping, and then the one in, in December would be a shorter, it's a three, 35, 40 minutes. But certainly they're reaching out to me, and, you know, we do have groups interested in what we do. I wish the Life Extension Foundation out of Florida would do a special in their magazine on the, on you the know, model funny, you're doing. They've, they've always kept, I, I mean, they've written, I think, three articles on my work over the years, though not in recent years. And I know Bill Falloon, I met him through Suzanne, actually. But the journal has had three articles on my work in the past. They always seem positive. I was in their, their textbook, you know, their disease prevention and treatment textbook that they put out periodically. That's a number of sections on my work. But they've never embraced my work for, I guess, for a number of reasons. First, you know, Life Extension, I've been told, makes $100 million a year selling supplements. And, you know, I read their journal. I get it. I'm a member. But they're selling huge amounts of supplements. And, you know, our supplements are designed for our patients. They're not, you know, the Allergy Research Group is going to release our enzyme just so people want an enzyme. They can use them, um, a pancreas product. So, you know, I, I, they have their own supplements, and we have our own, and that may be the issue. I don't really know what the issue. And they, they're also, they're, they're going off on their own. You know, they go off on their own t- tangents, their own interests. Um, they do a ton of research, and they also deal with the medical lobby. They do have a good blood testing program where you can order your own blood tests and see what's going on, rather than having to always go through your doctor. You go through their organization. I think life extension is terrific. No, having said all that, I mean, they, look, uh, Saul Ken, who, who I, whom I know, is, was head of it for years. He took on the FDA and won. They tried to put him in jail. He won. He beat the FDA. I mean, congratulations to him. Um, he's really he's done a lot for everybody in alternative medicine. And yes, they're really a successful group. Uh, you know, they do the blood testing. They do make. They are. They develop a research foundation. That I understand has millions of dollars in research funding, but they've never really, um, in any to any extent, reached out to me in terms other than the three articles. But the, I think the last article they did is goes back ten years. They haven't done anything recently. I think because it's a whole other paradigm. That's it's right. very specific. It's very customized. Look, right? I read Life Extension. I learn a lot from them. They have good articles. Um, but it's it's basically one size fits all. Everyone should be on you know on um, N-acetylcysteine and lipoic acid to raise glutathione levels. Well, you know we're very specific about it. Everyone should be on antioxidants. Well, we use antioxidants based on their effect on autonomic function. It's a completely different model, and we believe more effective. It's a real honor and a pleasure to have you on the show, Dr. Gonzalez. Tell people where they can go to find out more about you. Um, yeah, we have a website, www.dr-gonzalez, and Gonzalez is G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-Z. There's a Z at the end, dot com. So it's dr-gonzalez, G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-Z, dot com. Very simple. 
And we have a website. My office phone is 212-213-3337. Is there any enzymes that people can take prior to becoming a patient that would be helpful? I realize you're not in a one-thing-fits-all, but is there anything that we could take? The Allergy Research Group, Neutrocology, we've licensed them. The first time we've done this, we're going to try it out. They have our pancreas product, and legally they can't call it an enzyme for for a variety of FDA regions. They call it a a pancreas product. And they have our enzymes designed by me, and my name is on the label now. So those enzymes are the ones that, those are the pancreas product that we use in our practice. So they're available in health food stores. You can get it through the Allergy Research Group website. Our supplements specifically are available only to our patients. It's a separate company. But Allergy Research does, does have the right now to use, to use our pancreas product. So it would be okay to order that and take yeah, some of and, those? Or? Well, you know, see, there everything's individualized. I mean, I take, I take about eight, three times a day as a preventative because I, have, you know, I, can't get, I, I have to be in good health. I can't get sick. I have to be in good health. I have too many patients and responsibilities. You know, three to five, three times a day, that's what I normally recommend to somebody who's not sick. Three to five with meals. Cancer patients will have them on 120, 110 wow. a day. Wow. Yeah, well, you've got to blast away. Dr. Gonzalez, I hope you come back and talk to us again. It's been really educational and informative, and thank you so much for all that you're doing, and God bless Great. you. God bless, and thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, take care. You too.